Heavenly, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word. And um, we confess that it is often confusing to us. We confess that we read it and we don't always understand what it is you're trying to say to us. And so we ask for your grace, um, particularly this morning, with such a confusing passage. We ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit to understand the word that he inspired. We ask for your grace that you would make this confusing passage beneficial to us, that we might leave this place with a greater love and a greater knowledge of you, and that you would be glorified in the act of making yourself known to us. I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. St. Jerome, uh, the, the fourth century pastor and theologian, once remarked that Zechariah is the most obscure book of the Old Testament. And up until this week, I felt like he was being a bit unfair, but now I get it. In chapter four, we have another vision of the prophet Zechariah. This time it's a lamp and two olive trees. And just creating a, a visual picture in your mind is difficult enough, but ascribing meaning to it is a, a highly un uncertain endeavor. I'll humbly do my best to convey to you what I believe I have understood after sitting with this vision for some time. But if my sermon feels obscure, then I would ask you to please direct your complaints to one Mr. Zachariah. I believe that the first place to begin this morning is to point out that chapter four is one consistent vision with a textual interruption inserted into the middle of it. The textual interruption is a, a personal address to a man named Zerubbabel that runs from verse 6 through the first half of verse 10. So that what we have here is the first half of the vision in verses 1 through 5, the personal address to Zerubbabel in verses 6 through 10a, and then the second half of the vision in verses 10b through 13. And the fact that the personal address to Zerubbabel is an interruption becomes clear when you read verse 5, immediately followed by the second half of verse 10. At the end of verse 5, Zechariah is asked, do you know what these are? Referring to the lamp and the olive trees. To which Zechariah admits, no, my Lord. And jumping down to the second half of verse 10, the conversation continues with the explanation Zechariah is seeking in verse 5. These seven lamps are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Zechariah then asks, well, what about the olive trees? To which he eventually receives the answer, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I believe that pointing out the structure and verse breakdown of this chapter is the place to begin because it, it helps us, at least it does me, to break the chapter down into more manageable pieces. We have two things going on here, a vision and a personal address. They are related because one has literally been inserted into the middle of the other. And so we ultimately have to ask ourselves how they are related. But teasing them apart for the time being at least gives us a temporary clarity to consider their meaning one at a time before we have to consider them together. 
And we'll begin with the vision of the lamp and the two olive trees. Specifically within that vision, we'll begin with a, a consideration of this seven-lipped, uh, seven-lipped gold lamp described for us in verse 2. I see a lampstand all of gold, Zechariah says, with a bowl on the top of it. And there are seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. We begin here not because the construction of this lamp is obvious by any stretch of the imagination, but because the explanation in verse 10b of what this lamp signifies is the clearest of any of the explanations we have to work with. And the explanation in verse 10b helps us to better picture the construction of this lamp in our minds. In verse 10b, Zechariah is told that these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And that, my dear friends, is the clearest statement in the entire chapter. Based on archaeological discoveries of actual lamps, what is most likely being pictured here is a bowl, not unlike this one, which I happen to have here with me. And this bowl would have been positioned on the top of a lampstand like this, right? But rather than the rim of the bowl being perfectly smooth and circular like this one, there were seven places where the potter, while the clay was still wet, would have pinched the rim to create a spout. And the result was a a seven-spouted, what the NRSV translates as a seven-lipped bowl. You would have had, see this picture, the spout at the tip of the pitcher? You had seven of those, right, positioned all around the edge of this bowl. Got it? (laughs) The bowl would be filled with oil, and then a wick would be laid in each of the spouts so that when the wicks were lit, what you had was a seven-light lamp fed by a bowl of oil positioned on top of a golden lampstand. Can you see it? Extra credit if you can. It's okay if you can't. Because regardless of whether you can picture this seven-lighted lamp, the meaning of the seven lights is still the same. They are the seven eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. This is like the eye of Sauron-like material here. His seven eyes scour the earth, right? There's nothing hidden from his sight. It sounds like a terrifying thing when I say it like that. But in reality, this was a symbol of divine blessing. Job 36 tells us that God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. And in Psalm 32, God offers his aid by saying, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But perhaps most relevant to our passage this morning is the observation of Ezra, the the prophetic counterpart to Zechariah. When the people were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after after their return from exile, In Ezra 5, the prophet observes the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews and their opponents did not stop them from their work. It's certainly true that the the eyes of God can be a symbol of judgment in scripture, but in each of these cases, it was the opposite. The eyes of God were a sign of blessing. This golden lampstand with its seven spouted lamp was a sign of divine blessing for his people. Our one hopes that the lamp will never go dark. But if you look beyond the lamp in this vision, you'll see two olive trees, right? One on each side of the lamp. 
And according to verse 12, there's a golden pipe that runs from each olive tree to the bowl. And these trees provide a constant supply of oil to the bowl that keeps God's eyes shining on his people. These two olive trees keep the fuel flowing. And as a result, the light of God's blessing is never extinguished among his people. But who do these trees represent? If the seven spouted lamp represents the eyes of God and the divine blessing that comes from him watching over you like he does the sparrow, then who are the trees that keep the blessing burning? Zechariah, as we've already noted, asked that question in verse 11, what are these two olive trees to the right and to the left of the lampstand? And the answer he received was that the two are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of all the earth as if that clears things up. I'm sure that this is the very sort of thing that Jerome would point to when you asked him why he called Zechariah obscure. The answer provides no further clarity. The description is so vague that you could argue it's descriptive of a whole bunch of different people, and that's exactly what scholars do. There are several candidates whom scholars suggest fit the description. And to spare you, I won't get into the catalog of candidates and why one pair is more likely than any other. Two names that surface most frequently, though, are Joshua the high priest, whom we met last week, and Zerubbabel the governor. We met Joshua the high priest last week, clothed in his filthy garments before God. But Zerubbabel is a new character. He was not a king, but he was a governor. The closest thing to a king, given his Davidic lineage and the absence of any other challengers. Together, these two were providing leadership for God's people as they settled into the land after the exile. Joshua and Zerubbabel were most likely the figures represented by these olive trees. The high priest was important for his role in offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. But Zerubbabel, the king-like figure of the day, was significant because it was his job to initiate and oversee the rebuilding of the temple out of the ashes left by the Babylonians when they burned the old one to the ground. Mark Boda, in his commentary on Zechariah, lays out in great detail the common ritual pattern for the construction and reconstruction of sacred shrines across the ancient Near Eastern world. And there were three phases that were common to these ancient Near Eastern cultures. The first phase was the decision to build. No king would ever commission the construction or reconstruction of a temple without the green light from his deity. The second stage was the preparation of the building site and materials. This involved surveying and excavating the land, potentially even uncovering the old foundation stones if it was a rebuild. And then the third stage was the foundation laying. And the king was, who was involved in the, the prior two stages played a particularly ceremonial role in this third one. And let's let Boda describe his role to us. He writes, the third key stage in the restoration of a temple site was the foundation laying for which there was a special ceremony. In this ceremony, a royal figure with ritually clean hands would create a brick mold which he would for, with which he would form the first brick for the new temple from a mixture of fine ingredients, including honey, 
G, oil, beer, wine, plants, and of course, clay. The brick was anointed with oil, and it was transported by the royal figure in a special basket on his head in a procession led by the deity associated with the shrine. And once at the temple site, the royal figure would lay the foundation. These two leaders of God's people, Joshua and Zerubbabel, would ensure God's blessing to his people as long as they faithfully fulfilled the roles God had assigned to them. One as a priest, the other as a ruler overseeing the recovery and reconstruction of a temple. Ironically, these men were themselves the the divine blessing for a people who desperately needed leadership given their tenuous hold on their homeland. Joshua and Zerubbabel's faithfulness was like oil that kept the eyes of God lit. If they were to falter in any way, then the flow, flow of oil would cease. They would be removed from their positions and the eyes of God would be shut towards his people. God had already sent his people into exile due to a a failure of leadership once. And so a lot is being laid on Joshua and Zerubbabel as they are pictured as the olive trees upon whom the divine blessing depends. But in Zechariah's vision, the oil is flowing and the eyes of God are shining upon his people. The olive trees are miraculously providing a constant supply of oil. This is not how olive oil is created. Olives had to be beaten out of trees and pressed for their oil. It was an involved process, but these trees seem to have olive oil on tap. The image here of a golden pipe sticking out of an olive tree is more descriptive of how we extract syrup from a maple tree. But even maple syrup eventually slows to a trickle and then stops. There's a limit to how much a tree can produce, but these trees are keeping it coming. It was miraculous. Which brings us finally to the personal address to Zerubbabel that was inserted into the middle of this vision. If you look at this personal address in the light of the ancient Near Eastern expectations of a king's role in reconstructing a temple that Mark Boda described for us earlier, then you'll notice that Zerubbabel is, is filling that role for the Hebrew people. It's significant that verse six makes it clear that the personal address to Zerubbabel is the word of the Lord coming to him. The approval and blessing of his deity is the first phase that every king in the ancient Near East required before proceeding with a construction project. And here's Zerubbabel is receiving it. And with phase one completed, Zerubbabel is then pictured as having success in the, new two, in the next two phases of building a temple, preparing the building site and then laying the foundation. In verse seven, a question is posed to a mountain of dirt and rubble. What are you, is the question. Apparently, the answer is no match for Zerubbabel. For before Zerubbabel, the mountain will be turned into a plain. Here he is preparing the building site as part of phase two. He does his work with ease before moving on to the third phase. And in verse seven, we see him performing his ceremonial role of laying the foundation. He's walking out amongst the people with the first stone, And the people are blessing it with shouts of grace, grace to it. 
leaving no doubt that Zerubbabel was indeed laying the foundation, the text tells us explicitly in verse 9 that that's what's going on. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. Phase 3 is complete, and Zerubbabel is given assurances in verse 9 that what he has begun with this first stone will be brought to completion. Verse 9 says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands also shall complete it. In this personal address, Zerubbabel is being provided assurances and the confidence necessary to begin the long, challenging work of rebuilding the temple. In this vision, the work is almost effortless. Entire mountains are written off with a a flick of the wrist, and there's no dissension. The people rejoice with one voice at the sight of the ceremonial brick. We know the reality will be much more difficult than that. But again, Zerubbabel is being pictured as one with almost miraculous ability here. As an olive tree, he and Joshua have endless supply to keep the blessing coming. As a king, he will face no opposition. And here we arrive at the most important verse in all of, all of the chapter, verse 6. Thankfully, the most important verse is also the clearest. In this verse, the word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel, and God says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God is telling Zerubbabel in all, that in all things, he deserves the credit. It's not by the might of any human or the power of any person that God's blessing comes to his people. Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two olive trees in our vision, have a never-ceasing supply of oil because God provides them with the enduring strength necessary to fulfill the roles he has called them to amongst his people, roles that are beyond them and that exhaust them. The oil flowing out of these two trees seems miraculous precisely because it is. Equally miraculous is the success Zerubbabel encounters in his effort to rebuild the temple as a king. From other historical accounts of that time period, we know the reality wasn't that clean. There was opposition and mountains didn't move themselves, but God has declared himself a co-worker in the event. He funded the work by his spirit. And so he provides Zerubbabel with what was necessary to persevere. God is showing us how he works here. Richard Sibbs, the 16th century Anglican theologian, once wrote that God knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, the government of grace, therefore, in the government of grace, he requires no more than he gives. And he gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. In the government of grace, he requires no more than he gives. He gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. Out of this vision and personal address braided together into an obscure chapter in Zechariah, I believe that this is what God is teaching us about himself, that he requires no more than he gives. He gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. He provides the bottomless reserves of oil that he himself requires to continually bless his people. 
He greases the skids of a temple project so that he might come to live with his people more quickly. He provides you with the strength to get out of bed when you just want to lay there. He provides the satisfaction that eases your resentment. He forgives in order to soothe your anger. He fills you with resolve when you are tempted. He humbles you when you are proud. He protects you when you are joyful, comforts you when embarrassed, calms you when anxious, challenges you when reticent, forces you to rest when you won't stop running. God requires all sorts of things from you. For each of us, it is different. But whatever your calling, whether it's homeschooling, engineering, law, counseling, painting, waiting tables, or accounting, one thing he requires of each of us, that we abide in him and draw our strength and power from his spirit, right? This means praying to him throughout the day from morning until evening. It means shutting your eyes and saying the Lord's prayer when you feel unequal to the task before you. It means stopping, going to a lonely place to pray. You cannot do what he requires of you unless you acknowledge that you are ever walking and living in his presence. Your roots must draw from somewhere in order to produce fruit. You can't keep pushing out fruit on your own forever. And so Jesus says, come to me and I will fill you up so that you are able to do all things. I will make your path appear smoother than it actually is, and I'll give you the strength to walk it. God requires many difficult things of us. It's part of living in a broken world and worshiping a crucified Savior. However, God requires no more than he gives, and he gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. He is more than enough for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.